and of course we know that he's referring to the grace, the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor and loving kindness of God that was given to us um, when Jesus came and accomplished for us what he accomplished for us. But it says that that grace will teach us. Grace, grace, the grace of God is our teacher. He said that grace will teach you to live righteously. See, we know it was God's grace, the abundance of grace, Romans 5 and 17, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. That's grace. We didn't, we didn't earn or deserve this gift of right standing with God in the eyes of God that we've received. But he said the gift that you've been given and the righteousness that you've been made, if you will allow God's grace, it will teach you how to live righteously. You became righteous. Now, positionally righteous. Now, let's learn how to function as a righteous man, woman of God, free from the chains of sin teach you to live righteously. The grace of God will teach you how to live righteously. It'll teach you how to live soberly in this present evil world. Amen. That's the power of God's grace. Religion would try and tell us that if we preach grace, that people will use the grace of God as an excuse to sin They will use all that God has done for them and the position that he has put them in to to go and and just do whatever they want to do. But we see that's, that's not the case. It's not the case at all. We see this echoed in a different way through the Apostle John by the Holy Spirit in 1 John chapter 3 where he says the love of God that has been bestowed upon us, we need to spend some time examining it. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And he says we should be called children of God because His love has made us children of God. He came to His own, but His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, He has given the power to be made, to become the offspring, the children of God here in the earth. He said we should be called children of God because we are children of God. But watch this now. He said, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him, we will be like him. He who has this hope, he who has this hope in Christ. Some people say, well, the pronoun there is hope within you, the hope of Christ within you. Amen. It's not one or, it's not either or, it's both and. will purify their lives even as Christ is pure. See, religion says don't, don't go too far with this grace thing because people use it as an excuse to sin. Um, but, you know, m- make sure you focus on the punishment of sin and the wages of sin because you know, we're going to really hammer down on this in hopes that fear will motivate people. That fear will motivate people to purify their lives even as Christ is pure. Father does not want you and me to be motivated by fear. Amen. Are you hearing me? Now, in pulpit terminology, you know, 
Well, he talks about a bold preacher. A preacher who preaches the word. Whoever receives it, whoever don't, they refuse to compromise, refuse. And notice that this bold declaration of the word of God almost always focuses on things pertaining to human sexuality, things pertaining to uh, greed and pride, and there's all these sinfulness. In other words, a bold preacher is considered to be one who stands in the pulpit and rails against sin. No matter whose stoves they may step on, no matter whose feelings they may hurt. Okay? Well, listen, I, I understand that, but the Bible also says speak the truth in love. Right. Speak the truth in love. It may be true, but if, but if the man in the pulpit, the woman in the pulpit is not speaking it in love, amen, God's not pleased. But I believe there is a level of boldness when it comes to preaching the truth about grace that is required above and beyond even preaching against sin. What what does the Word say about these things? And being bold enough to preach perfected forever. Being bold enough to preach you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Being bold enough to preach that the born-again man doesn't sin because he cannot sin and explaining what that means. I mean, all of these things are in the Scriptures. How about being bold enough to preach unbroken fellowship with God? See, it's easy to get a few cheap laughs talking about sins that most people in the congregation have never committed. But it's the grace of God that will teach us. Amen? And I want to understand the full dimension of the love of God. Amen. The height, the breadth, the width, the length, the depth. And it is, again, what we've said before. By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God because we're talking about things on a scope and level now that you'll never understand unless you understand it by faith. And the same is true with your salvation. The same is true for what Jesus has done for you, what He's given to you, what He made you when He made you a new creation in Christ Jesus. It, it, you know, to limit it, to water it down, to try to put it in, in, in terminology, lower the bar and, and put it in terminology where people can wrap their brains around it, you're not doing them any favors. Amen. So by faith we understand that we've been perfected forever by the blood of Jesus. By faith we understand that we now enjoy unbroken fellowship with God the Father forever. The same fellowship that Jesus enjoys with His Father. No different, no less, not a lesser version, but the same version because it is the absolute best version. All right. We said that, we've talked a lot about functional oneness and positional oneness. Um, I have not said this exactly this way but it really just became clear to me um, we talked some this year about the book from Pastor John Burke Imagine Heaven he has a sequel out to that book now called Imagine the God of Heaven and it still focuses on people who've had near death experiences and have crossed over to the other side and returned to tell the story but this particular book focuses on not just heaven but on the things that people encountered when they encountered the Lord. 
and uh, I'm about three or four chapters in, and it's it is masterfully written. It it is um, it's a book that's going to I believe bring a lot of people to to Jesus, and especially in in this particular book, he's focusing on at least in the first part of it, he's focusing on people in other countries, other nationalities that. Um, in other words, they don't know Jesus. They don't. They they don't read the Bible, but yet when they see the Lord, they know He's Jesus. Or they may describe Him as one of the goddesses of their Hindu religion, except for they don't talk about um, a, a nude woman with eight arms. They talk about a man wrapped in light and love. Amen. That's all they know to call Him. But again, that's their interpretation. But they're clearly seeing the Lord. And so, as I was listening to that, this was prompted to me by the Holy Spirit, and that is, functional oneness with God is what every human longs for the most. That's what every human being longs for the most. Because functional oneness with God is what we were created for, it is what we lost when Adam sinned, And it is what Jesus came to restore for us and for Father God. Because we weren't just the ones who lost something when we were separated from God. That's why the Bible says that God has forgiven you for His sake. Not just for your benefit, but for His benefit as well. For those of you who are new to this functional oneness term, we use the example of a man and a woman being married. And that marriage covenant makes them positionally one with one another. But then once we are positionally one, we have to go about life and living, learning how to function as one. When we're born again, we are given positional oneness, standing with God as a gift. But then discipleship is about, and walking with the Lord, is about learning how to function as one with Him. Functional oneness with God is what every human longs for the most. It's what we were created for. It's what we lost And it's what Jesus came to restore for us and restore for His Father. Functional oneness is not possible without positional oneness. But positional oneness alone will not satisfy our deepest longing any more than a marriage license alone will satisfy our desire for a spouse. You see that, right? Oneness and fellowship with God are not possible without right standing with God. I, th- I think, thank you Holy Spirit, I think the same could be true. Functional oneness with God is what every human longs for the most. I think you can reverse that as well. Functional oneness with you is what Father God longs for the most. Amen. Amen. It's, it's our desire because it's His desire and we were created in the image and likeness of God. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And a lot of times we, we don't even really know what it is that our heart desires because we, we start trying to f- scratch those itches with all kinds of things in the flesh and, and, and nothing ever satisfies because it, it, it cannot. So oneness and fellowship with God are not possible without right standing with God. This should go a long way towards explaining why Father has given to us an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And we see this in um, Romans 5 and 17. Let me put that screen on the board there. Put that verse on the on the screen. <laughs> Put that verse on the screen. 
For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, this is speaking of Adam's sin, right? Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So follow the progression. Sin caused death. Death is separation. And separation from God is the complete opposite of what Father God desires most with you, and that is fellowship. Death equals separation. And we see from Romans 5 and 17 that separation ruled us with an iron fist until Jesus came and changed that. And reigning in life, as we see in this verse, is the result of our functional oneness with God. We can't, we can't do that apart from God ruling and reigning in us and through us. Now, Romans 5 and 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's disobedience many will be made righteous. Remember, sin brings death. Death equals separation. When Adam sinned, he was one with God. He had a spiritual union with God. When he sinned, that union was severed. It, it broke his union and his oneness with God in the same way that you would unplug a skill saw from an outlet. Amen. He was cut off. He was disconnected. And we see that one man's disobedience, the Bible says many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience. This is speaking of what Jesus did for you and me to make us righteous, not just give us righteousness, but to make us through the new birth. Seed reproduces after its own kind. We were born a second time from the incorruptible seed of the word of God, which means we became partakers of the divine nature. We covered all that last week. Now, let me ask you a question, and it's not a trick question. How many sins did Adam commit? He committed one. And how many times did he commit that one sin? One time. One sin by one man was enough to cause death. One sin by one man was enough to cause eternal separation from God to come upon all mankind, every descendant of Adam. We tend to think about a whole bunch of sins piling up and eventually one last sin becoming the final straw. You ever use that expression? Man, that's the final straw. And I think sometimes we, we look at it that way, that it, it piles up, and it's, it, it's not just one sin that, that, that's, that's uh, enough to separate us from God. But if, if, we, if we sin long enough and hard enough and, and, and go where no sinner's gone before, that we've gone too far, and now God's washed His hands of us, and we're past the point of no return. My friend, the devil is deceiving you if that is the understanding that you have of sin. We tend to think of a whole bunch of sins piling up and eventually one last sin becomes the final straw. This thinking reveals how ignorant we are when it comes to the power of sin. It only takes one. Now I'm not telling you this to scare you, but because we don't understand the power of just one sin, we don't know how to appreciate what Jesus has done for us and given to us. One sin is all it takes. Because we're ignorant when it comes to the power of sin, this ignorance translates into many thinking that they have the power to keep and maintain a righteousness that they could never produce. God doesn't grade on the curve. You understand by that? People tend to grade on the curve. Grading on the curve means like when all the students in the class take the, 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 the math exam, 
And whoever did the best, even if the best was an 83, that becomes the highest score possible and everybody else is judged according to that highest score. Grading on the curve. We tend to grade on the curve by excusing uh, things that we do based upon our not being as bad as somebody else or our not doing what other people do that we judge to be worse than our own sin. And we think as long as we are, uh, what's that old saying? Uh, you know, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the guy next to you. You know, um, we, we tend, I think, to think that, that, that sin is the bear. And as long as we stay ahead of the guy who's lagging behind us, that somehow we're okay. That's not how this works. And I believe one of the great lessons that we are to take away from the Old Testament is we're to learn from the Old Testament the power of sin and how hopeless and helpless we are to make our own selves right before God in the eyes of God and therefore our desperate need for a Savior. Adam lost his positional oneness with God. This loss made functional oneness with God impossible. Now, I've said this a few times, but I'm just going to keep... We need to hear this. Functional oneness with God is dependent upon positional oneness with Him. In other words, if, if you haven't been made one with God, then you, you have no hope, no foundation of ever learning how to function together as one with Him. But again, the opposite though, positional oneness is not dependent upon functional oneness. Meaning, it's not about what you, you have to do to earn it or deserve it or keep it. It's about what's been done for you and what's been given to you. Now, We've added some stuff along the way with that review, but this is where we ended last week. Hebrews 10 and 14 says, For by one offering, speaking of Jesus and Him offering Himself as a sacrifice and as a payment for our sin, by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. If you've been born again, you've been perfected forever. But you'll never understand this if you don't understand that you are a spirit, you have a soul, you live in a body. The real you is your spirit, and that's the party that was born again. And if you've been born again, you've been made one with God. He put a new spirit in you, you've been made one with Him, and now that part of you has been sealed. When John, by the Holy Spirit, says, if you sin, confess it, and Father's faithful and just to forgive it. And then uh, one chapter later, he says, if you've been born again, you don't sin because you can't sin. He didn't forget what he wrote about in chapter 2. He understands the difference between spirit, soul, and body. He understands that in our flesh, we may still uh, make mistakes and commit sin as, as we're growing and developing and maturing and being discipled. But when it comes to your born-again spirit, your born-again spirit doesn't sin because it can't sin. It's been sealed. It's been made new. It's been made righteous. It's been made holy. It's been made one with God. And then it was sealed with the Holy Spirit so that good uh, can't get out and bad can't get in to corrupt it. It's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. And so this is why the Bible boldly proclaims that by this one sacrifice of Himself, Jesus perfected forever those who are still a work in progress. So we said, to conf- have you been confessing this any this week? I've been perfected forever by the blood of Jesus. I've been perfected forever by the blood of Jesus and my fellowship with God cannot be broken. So again, perfected forever by faith we understand. Now, I want to get back to this subject in the time we have remaining tonight. Unbroken fellowship. 
unbroken fellowship. This is one of the fundamental differences between a relationship with God and fellowship with God. In a relationship, you can have an on-again, off-again relationship. But with fellowship, it's not on-again, off-again. That's why people that you are truly in fellowship with, positioned by God in fellowship with these, with these individuals, you, you may go a while without seeing them, but when you're back in their presence, it's like you haven't been apart. You, can anybody relate to what I'm talking about there? Okay. So Father desires not only fellowship with you, He desires unbroken fellowship with you. So unbroken fellowship requires unbroken right standing with Him. And this is why He gave you the unending gift of right standing with Him. Amen. Lose the position, you lose the standing. Lose the standing and you lose the fellowship. The only way to never lose the fellowship, for the fellowship to never be broken, is to make it possible, I'm sorry, is to make it impossible to lose the position and standing. Are you following me? I I need to say that again. If you lose your position, see Adam sinned, he lost his position. Adam, where are you? He, he lost his position because he sinned. When he lost the position, he lost his standing. He hid from God because, remember, he said he, he, we said he didn't know where he stood with God anymore. If you lose the standing, then you lose the fellowship. All the other times God had come to the, to the garden in the cool of the day, Adam ran to meet him to fellowship with him. Now he's running from him instead of running to him. And God desires to have, again, unbroken fellowship with you. So this is why we see that Jesus is one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. And if you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, I'm going to get bold now. I'm going to get bold. If you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, there is nothing that can ever reverse that. Our righteousness was purchased with an eternal sacrifice that provided eternal redemption and eternal salvation. And I'm quoting Bible now. This, that, I'm, not, I'm not quoting some denomination's uh, transcript or, 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 or tenets of faith. I am quoting from the Word of God. Every one of these. Now, providing these things for everyone does not mean everyone is saved. The Bible is crystal clear on this. You have to try really, really, really hard to mess this up. It is so clear. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say everybody is saved. The Bible says, as many as received Him, He gave the power to become sons of God. We've already quoted that verse once this evening. But again, as many as received Him, in in stark contrast to those who He came to and He rejected. He came to one group, they rejected Him. But he says, listen, a lot of people rejected me, but those who received me, those are the ones who receive power to become sons of God. People who reject Jesus do not receive the supernatural ability from God to be transformed literally at the spirit level of their being into the offspring of God. And he goes on to clarify in John the third chapter that if they have rejected Jesus and ran from the light instead of to the light, that the wrath of God that Jesus came to take off of us still abides on the one who has not returned to the Lord to receive His gift of salvation. Now let's go to Romans chapter 6 and verse number 10. Romans 6 and 10. Praise God. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For the death that He died... 
He died to sin once for all. Do you see this? Once for all. If somebody does something once for all, then nobody else has to do it for themselves or anybody else because somebody's already done it once and for all. Right? If you're all in line to play putt-putt golf and the dude at the front of the line hands them a credit card and pays for everybody behind them, he paid once and for everybody in that line. There's no need for anybody else in that line to pay because they've already been paid. So Jesus paid once for all for everybody. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Not just for sin, but to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, because he was raised from the dead, right? The life that he lives, he lives to God. We're not going to get into it tonight, but I don't think we have time. But if you go back a chapter, chapter 5, we see that we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. But now we're saved by the life of Jesus. Our salvation is not just an act. Our salvation is an eternal spirit, the Bible says. The only, the only way our salvation could lapse is if our... <laughs> am I the only one that's ever made the, made the mistake of, um, I, you know, put a, uh, um, an automatic draft on a credit card and then the credit card company sends you a new credit card and next thing I know, my, I'm getting a thing from the water company saying that I didn't pay my bill. I'm like, it's on automatic draft. Like, How's that, you know? Trying to get those few percent points, I guess. You know what I'm saying? Amen. Put it on the checking accounts, what I mean. But, but why did it lapse? I had, it's, it's, it's set up on a payment, you know, automatically paid. Every time it's due, it's paid. Every time it's due, it's paid. Well, the payment method is no longer valid. So Jesus is the payment, and, and he is always going to be. So likewise, I'm sorry. So that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So we were reconciled to God, reestablished in oneness and fellowship with God by the death of his son. But now we are saved. We, we are, we are uh, in this eternal state of salvation because of the life of Jesus. We're in him, he's in us. Verse 11, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, reckoning or considering is a function of the mind. Because our sin is gone, shame exists in our mind, and considering then is a deliberate and intentional action. I want to I give you this same verse again from the Amplified. Romans chapter 6, verse 10 and 11 from the Amplified. For by the death he died, he died to sin, ending his relation to it. That's the difference between dying for it and dying to it. Amen? He died to it. Meaning once he died to it, it ended his relationship uh, to it once and for all. I'll explain this in just a moment. Stay with me. And the life that he lives, he, live, he is living to God in unbroken fellowship with him. What breaks, what severs fellowship with God? Sin is what breaks fellowship with God. Jesus became our sin. He died as our sin, but he was raised up back to God to newness of life, effectively ending his relationship to sin and also ending yours and mine as well. Stay with me now. So even, um, verse 11, even so consider yourselves also dead to sin and your relationship to sin broken, but alive to God, living in unbroken fellowship with him in Christ Jesus. 
All right, let's, let's break this down for a moment. Number one, consider yourself dead to sin. Death means separation. So he also then uh, amplifies that. Consider your relation to sin broken. A severed relationship. Severed from the sin that once separated you from God. He says consider. Why should we consider this? It's just, let's go back to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, what manner of love is fathers bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God? Why should we be called children of God? Because we've been made children of God. We should be called what we've been made. The reason he's saying to you and me, consider your relation to sin broken, consider yourself also dead to sin, is because you died to sin when Jesus died to sin. But now it's one thing to be dead to sin. It's another thing altogether for you and me to consider ourselves to be dead to sin. You can be dead to sin, but still consider yourself alive to sin. And sin can still have influence uh, in your life if you don't consider yourself dead to it. Remember, Jesus came to take away sin. So Jesus separated you from the sin that separated you from God. He separated you from the sin that separated you from God. Now, I I want to get just as plain as I can be, all right? Before we were born again, we didn't just enjoy sin We didn't just play around with sin. Sin wasn't just a playmate. Sin sin wasn't, you know, somebody that we went and visited on the weekends. Okay? You and I, I'm speaking to people who've been born again now. If you've been born again, I'm speaking to you. You and I were once one with sin. We were married to it and we were one with it. And if you've been born again, your marriage to sin did not end with a divorce. It ended with a death. It ended with a death. We died to sin so that we could be married to, become one with another. And now the Bible says, bear fruit unto God. We were married to sin and our marriage to sin produced all kinds of negative offspring in our lives. And I'm not talking about children. I'm talking about consequences and habits and, 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 and things that affected us negatively in our emotions. Consequences of sin. We were married to sin. We produced fruit. Uh, in our marriage with sin, but Jesus came and set us free from sin. And how is that? It didn't end in a divorce. He, 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 it ended with, with our death. Amen. He talks about how if, if a, if a, if a wife, uh, you know, passes away, she, if the husband passes away, the wife is no longer bound to the law of her husband. Amen. I, I'm, I'm praying that you're thinking. All right. So listen to what the prophets had to say about this from Hosea 2, 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Here's that same passage from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I will take you to be my wife until you make a mistake. 
No, he's saying, I'll take you to be my wife forever. He's talking about the covenant relationship that Jesus paid such a high price for you and me to now have an option to enter into. He says, I will take you to be my wife in righteousness. Justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know Yahweh. Now, I want you to look at this because, you know, we think, oh, this is so sweet, you know, taking my wife and righteousness. No, he's saying, I'm going to take you to be my wife and, and I'm going to do it legally. I'm going to make you one with me forever by a legally binding covenant that is established in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion, and faithfulness. Now, I want, stay with me, I'm gonna, I, I, I want you to see this, and I, I know, praise God, we're, we're digging into some heavy stuff now, all right? When he says, I'll take you to be my wife forever, and I'll take you to be my wife in righteousness, in order for you to be one with God forever, something's got to give, because our sin separates us from God. And it would appear on the surface, and no doubt when this was originally written, you think, how could we be one with God forever and God still love us in righteousness? Because at some point, if He's going to be one with us forever, He's going to have to compromise His righteousness to accommodate our unrighteousness. In other words, God's going to have to just look the other way, sweep our sin under the rug, pretend like we don't still make mistakes, or else He's going to... Are you, are you following what I'm saying? Uh, so compromise in, 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 in essence. But no, God is saying, you're going to be my wife forever, and we're going to do it legally. How in the world is that going to happen? Now, I want you to notice, He says, I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know Yahweh. Notice, knowing Yahweh comes after the marriage. He didn't say, I'm going to introduce you to my father, and if my father, you know, approves, then you'll be my wife. No, he said, I'm I'm going I'm to marry you. We're going to be one together. I'm going to make you one with me, and, and, and you're going to be one with me, and I'm going to be one with you. And then through this union, you're going to know, you will know Yahweh. It reminds me of this verse from the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2 and 4. Who desires, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I used to think you came to the knowledge of the truth and you got saved. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying that through the new birth now, we have union with God. And now we're in a position, because we've been made one with God, that we can now come to the knowledge of the truth. This also lines up with uh, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come and I will give, learn and you'll find. Come and, I'll, come and I'll give, learn, and you will find. Now, number three, back to Romans 6. Consider yourself alive to God. Alive to God means you're in union and oneness with Him. So he's literally saying, see yourself alive to God. See yourself as someone who is in union and oneness with Him. And then number four, he says, consider yourself living in unbroken fellowship with God. Consider yourself to be living in unbroken fellowship with God. Now listen, this goes back to, listen, I'm, you hear me out and hear me well, okay? I'm not trying to get you to question your salvation. And this is where I think a lot of, I'm going to give them credit for being well-meaning. I think this is where a lot of well-meaning pastors get in the pulpit and they say, no, 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 salvation is not that easy. Let me, let, me, let me go ahead and tell you something. Saying I do is easy. 
Being successfully married for 36 years, that's, that's, that requires some effort. Are you following what I'm saying? Calling on the name of the Lord and receiving salvation and becoming one with God forever in unbroken fellowship, that's easy. And it's easy on purpose. Jesus made it easy. He did the heavy lifting so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. But now that we've been made one with Him, now we're in a position to learn how to function as one with Him. Now we're in a position to know Yahweh. So consider yourself to be in unbroken fellowship with God. I think a lot of people come to God. Again, I'm not saying you're not saved, but a lot of people come to God and it's like they're going to date God. But we're going to go with a long engagement here, you know, just to make sure that this thing's going to work out, right? Before we really commit. Are you, are you following me? No, you, you need to see yourself married to Christ. I mean, I'm, I'm in him. He's in me. He, 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 he wanted me. He, he, he chose me. He needs me. I, I'm with him and I'm with him forever. Thick and thin, up and down, good or bad. Amen. I'm not ever turning away. See, listen to me, please. This is, this is how grace teaches you to live righteously. This is how grace teaches you to live soberly, even in an ever increasingly, uh, evil present world. I put this in my notes. It's one thing to see yourself in fellowship with God. It's another thing altogether to see yourself in unbroken fellowship with Him. The devil never wants you to take that next step. Now, what would God have to do for us to be able to live in unbroken fellowship with Himself? And I put this in my notes because I know there's people in the room, people watching online... We need to ask and answer this question whether you believe unbroken fellowship is possible or not. In other words, the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use this word loosely, okay? Hypothetically then, let's just say it this way. Hypothetically, maybe this will help you finally see the truth, okay, if you're not sure about this. Hypothetically, if God says, you know what, I want to have unbroken fellowship with my people. That's what I want. And I'm willing to pay whatever it costs, Okay. So if this is what Father desires, and it is, okay, then what, what is he going to have to do for you and me to make that possible? Okay, you got the question? Well, let's, let's start with another question. What is the one thing that separates us from positional oneness with God and the fellowship that positional oneness makes possible? It's sin, Sin is the enemy here. Are you following me? Father, God desires to have unbroken fellowship with you and me. Sin separates us from positional and functional uh, oneness and fellowship with God. So he desires one thing, but he created you and me with the ability to choose. Which means if we choose sin, sin is is going to break our fellowship with God because sin brings death. We're not talking about them piling up over time. One sin brought death to all mankind. That's the power of one sin. One sin. Come on now. One sin is enough to break fellowship with God. One sin is enough to separate you from God forever. That's how powerful sin is. We need to quit playing around with it. We need to quit acting like it's not that big a deal. And we need, and we need to quit watering it down thinking, well, you know, uh, I don't, I, at least I don't do what other people do. No, one sin is enough. 
And by the way, sin, even once you've been established in unbroken fellowship with God, sin can still hinder your function and will hinder your functional oneness with God. Now, to be clear, sin's our choice. Which means every time we choose to sin, our fellowship with God is broken. This is a real problem for us, but again, it's also a problem for God. Because his desire is to have unbroken fellowship with you and me, but he just, he just has a hard time getting us to cooperate with that. So for God to have unbroken fellowship with us, he must figure out a way to prevent our choice to sin from separating us from him without compromising his own justice and righteousness. Every sin incurs a debt that must be paid. It cannot be swept under the rug like it never happened and God be a just and righteous God. So are you following along? Yes? No? Am I trying to squeeze too much in here at the end? The only answer to this dilemma, the only answer to this dilemma is find a way to pay in advance for your sin and mine before we commit it. The only answer is to find some way for the separation, also known as death, our sin produces to have already occurred so that when we sin, we will not die and be separated from God yet again. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He took your sin, not in part, but in whole. You say, Pastor Mark, this whole forgiving me for sin I haven't committed yet. Every sin that you, Jesus paid for, for you and me was future. He paid for sin that you weren't alive yet to commit. And he paid the price for sin. But now watch this. Because he paid it in full and he came to take it away, when he became your sin, it separated him. Are you following this? Do you realize that Jesus experienced God the Father experienced broken fellowship with Jesus. He turned his back on him. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why why have you cut me loose? Why have you uh, uh, let me go? That happened when he became your sin and my sin and our sin, all of it. Stand with me tonight. Where does the time go? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I promise I'm going to pray and let you go, okay? Just let me, just one more time. You say, I got it, Pastor. I know, but somebody doesn't. And let's, let's just try one more time, okay? Sin breaks fellowship. Father doesn't want broken fellowship. But he doesn't have a sin problem. We do. And so every time we choose to sin, it breaks our fellowship with him, which is what he does not want. How can he be married to us forever in righteousness and justice without just pretending like our sin didn't happen and without... Sweeping it under the rug. He would not be just if he did that. 
So what was the plan? The plan was to pay the debt incurred by sin before the sin was committed, including the separation part of it, which is what Jesus did for you and me. So that now, as one who has been buried with Christ and raised up together with Him in newness of life, your sin will no longer break fellowship or separate you from God because Jesus already paid the debt that that sin incurred in real time and He was already separated from God because of it so that now your sin and my sin cannot separate us from God. Yes? Is this making sense to you? All right. More to come on this. Father, you're good to us. We love you. Thank you for life and peace. Jesus, thank you for this indescribable gift. Thank you for this uh, grace, this, this amazing, amazing, compassionate love that you have for us and that you demonstrate for us. Father, help us understand these things. Lord, as we, as we lay down on our pillows tonight to, to go to sleep, Lord, let the truth of these things and the, and the, and the, and the, and the heavy, beautiful weight uh, of these things, Lord, just wash over us and, and produce peaceful rest like we've never seen, never experienced. In Jesus' name, amen. Know that you love. Thank you for being here tonight. Merry Christmas if I don't see you until next week. Thank you for uh, your faithfulness on Wednesday night, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon.